Welcome to the Broken to Unbroken podcast with Dr. Nick Askey, where we dive deep into how to eliminate pain and continue to train. All right, so this episode of the Broken to Unbroken podcast is uh, recorded on April 3rd to give you guys a bit of a timestamp because the landscape of things is ever changing at rapid speed. But I want to thank Bobby Hillman for uh, joining us on the podcast. Uh, Bobby, can you give people a little bit of your background and kind of how you can weigh in on this this crisis that we're going through? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Nick and I were in, uh, I believe it was a chemistry course uh, a long time ago. Uh, so I am a graduate of the University of Wisconsin. I have degrees in biochemistry and molecular biology. And uh, since I graduated, I've spent time working with infectious disease research at various uh, universities throughout uh, Wisconsin and Illinois. I've spent the past five years working at Abbott Labs um, in the diagnostic field. So I've spent some time in healthcare and over the past few months with the uh, pandemic that has hit, I was tasked with uh, developing some tests for COVID-19. So Abbott, put out a high throughput test, which will do uh, 400 tests per day. But then the more recent test that was put on market is a rapid test that will give results in 15 minutes. So that's gotten a lot of notoriety and uh, that's finally getting distributed this week to the places that need it. So uh, we're excited that that's going to try to help uh, some of the patients who need to be tested and isolated, and hopefully we can start to kind of mitigate this as best we can. And I think that's crucial because I was hearing delays in test results anywhere from three to five days here in Texas. Uh, I was also hearing of like directly from PAs and nurses that people were performing tests incorrectly and just swabbing the nose like a flu test and not just like tickling the brain like you're supposed to do with this test. Uh, right. So I think that the, the, the throughput time of like 15 minutes to where someone knows if they're positive before they leave versus just going, oh, wait until the test results. Uh, and then I may go to a happy hour or I may go out to a barbecue or I may let my spouse go to a doctor's appointment and sit those medical staff down for two weeks due to indirect exposure. I think this is going to really revolutionize our approach to this pandemic. Yeah, I agree. And it's going to be especially important once the volume exists for this testing in that people who are asymptomatic uh, or people who have yet to experience symptoms, this test will be able to tell if they're positive or not. So it will be uh, a much more efficacious way to uh, understand who needs to be quarantined and uh, isolating themselves from their family and friends and coworkers. Uh, And also for the healthcare workers who are being exposed to this on the front lines who are still having difficulty having tests, I think this will give uh, the hospitals a better opportunity to get their workforce tested and to rotate out the people who are tested positive so that they're not exposing uh, both the other employees in the hospital and then uh, patients who are coming in who may not be positive but may be exposed, uh, that will limit their exposure as well. So I think on a lot of fronts, uh, it will start to really put a a more granular picture together of of who's positive and and who we should isolate and then to try to 
limit the exposure our healthcare workers have to the virus. And I've tried to educate myself from the most credible sources possible on this because that's all people are talking about when they come in to see me for their hot low back or their blown ACL or their super swollen knee or their crazy grapefruit swollen ankle sprain that would normally end up in an ER. Um, But people are asking me, they're like, why can't we just do what South Korea did in it's my understanding that South Korea tested the vast majority of their population, whether they were symptomatic or not. And we're kind of past that, but we can still kind of take a better late than never approach and test more people so we can go test quarantine. Um, and how, what do you think about that? I, it's my understanding that they tested a lot more asymptomatic people because they had access to more tests. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that is definitely the truth. Um, and so the first two uh, diagnosed positive cases in South Korea and the United States were both on the same day. Uh, so January 19th, both South Korea and the United States were aware of their first uh, COVID-19 positive patients. And South Korea took a much more proactive approach. Um, and that, like you said, they were testing much broader swaths of their population. They were working on things like contact tracing, where if people tested positive, they were very aggressively looking through the people they had interacted with, the places they had been, um, and kind of following up uh, to see who they had interacted with to really kind of mitigate the spread and, and to identify people that could potentially have been exposed and then to isolate them in a really uh, upfront, forward manner, instead of kind of just testing and then releasing people back out into the population. Um, and so uh, I think that there were some missteps in the first uh, couple of months in the United States, especially, um, for instance, the testing that the U.S. Uh, was dependent upon that the CDC had developed uh, turned out to be uh, a poor performer. So there was some issues with the uh, design of the test. And because of some of the regulatory limitations that exist in the U.S., they really couldn't get things up and running as fast as they wanted to with the testing. Um I know that there was opportunities to take the test that the WHO had built, uh, and for reasons that I can't explain, the United States declined to take those tests, and so it really kind of put us behind the eight ball. So now it's playing catch-up. Um, but yeah, the most uh, important thing that we can do right now that there are companies that are distributing more tests and more rapid tests is just to try to isolate and test as many people as we can. And I'm glad that you and your company and your efforts are are here to kind of be the the cavalry, uh, or at least give us some resources to test people. Because at least from what I've heard from Dr. Peter Atia, because he's got a big team working on this, uh, he said that I don't know if the WHO test is the one you were referring to that had over a million proven reliable tests in China, uh, or if it was a different one. Uh, that we turned down and then we tried to manufacture one and it wasn't reliable. And then we went to, is it Rausch in, is it a German company? Uh, Uh, Roche in like, they didn't, it was kind of like ready set. You don't have a huge inventory. You're going to produce this. So it was just kind of like telling 3M to start a mass company at the start. Uh, So we were really like starting from ground zero when we could have, whether this was politically motivated or not is kind of here nor there because it has already happened. But we we can learn from our mistakes because we know that this is not going to be the last time something comes up. 
and I think we we need to have a better prepared pandemic strategy and not just disband a team that we had here, whether it was ill prepared or not. We need to be prepared for situations like this. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we did have uh, that shortcoming of that the teams we needed in place and the people that had the background and the information and the experience to handle something like this were uh, unfortunately not involved. Um, so I think that severely crippled uh, the response. And I mean, even as of last year, there were government activities to prepare for a pandemic and they, they ran basically like simulations of what would happen in the event of something like this. So it's not like people didn't know that the possibility of this was out there. Um, but to, I think, have dismissed the risk of this uh, in a manner that that was done was uh, an egregious misstep. And I think that it was negligent in a lot of ways. Um, but I, there are also limitations within the, the regulatory framework of this country that made the ability to respond on a a company level from the testing uh, more difficult. So I, I think at least one of the things that I could hope to see as a change moving forward from this, in addition to uh, making it a priority to have people within your government who can adequately and adeptly respond to this is to make it so that there are flexibilities in place so that in a crisis situation, uh, there isn't the limitation on getting access to some of the things that exist both in this country and the world uh, that do exist right now. So one thing, I can't remember who I heard it from because I keep jumping back from Chris Masterjohn to Peter Atia to Slavit to all of these different like credible sources on the topic. Um, I have heard that you guys are just doing your job pumping out tests like at on an average of like 50 K a day, getting them out to people who need them. Um, but I have heard that the snag or bottleneck could be uh, attaining reagent for the test. Is that a concern for you guys? Uh, the rapid test uh, is not the same. Okay. As far as the, re the reagents that are required to do some of the other high throughput testing. Um, so the limitations on that test would be um, the swabs themselves. Um, but the reagents used for this testing are very unique to this particular test. Um, and so the manufacturing capability will exist um, at the capacity right now of, of 50,000 per day. And I'm sure that there are efforts underway to expand that manufacturing capacity because I know that the demand is extremely high and that basically uh, all of the distribution of the test is being governed by uh, the White House at this point. So I believe that the first shipments went out um, either Wednesday or Thursday to New Jersey, which now has the second highest number of cases in the country behind New York. So at least it's going to the right places. And I think that uh, once the manufacturing starts, uh, they should be in a spot where they're not going to be limited by what they can produce based on those reagent limitations. So one kind of off, not off topic, but not a perfect um, segue. Do you think that countries like South Korea, Singapore, uh, some of the Asian countries that have dealt with SARS and MERS at the, in the past and are just culturally accustomed to wearing masks 
flatten the curve faster because they wear masks? Or do you think that uh, it was their aggressive testing policy, a combination of the both? Because I know the U.S. has been kind of dragging their feet, whether it's lack of RCT trials or just the stigma of not everyone wanting to appear sick, that we don't want to mandate fabric or um, just basic masks for people when they go out in public. What do you think about masks in general as a topic? Uh, I think you're absolutely right to point to uh, some of the countries in the Eastern Hemisphere who are familiar with these sorts of uh, outbreaks and that they don't look at this as some sort of situation where people are going to ridicule them for protecting their health, I think, because they understand the severity of, of something of this nature. And in the United States, I don't think that it's really ever been uh, a, a widely distributed scare. I know that, I mean, for instance, when there were a couple of people in the United States with Ebola, that kind of blew up into a giant thing. And uh, I think that was taken far more seriously than this has been. And there were only two people who died. Um, but yeah, the, the stigma with wearing a mask in the United States, I think, has a lot to do with not wanting to appear either like a you're sick or be like you're some sort of paranoid freak who walks around worried about everything around you. So there has been a, a lot of dragging of the feet as far as providing that guidance from a, a perspective of even though this is supposed to protect you from spreading the virus if you're wearing a mask, it is also as more information comes out understood that the virus can spread by aerosolized particles. So people even who are coughing or talking or breathing can be spreading the virus. And so I think it's important that people protect themselves uh, as much as they can with simple precautions. Like, I mean, wearing a mask is a huge physical barrier and also kind of prevents you from touching your face, which a lot of people do just subconsciously. And that's a big route of the transmission of the virus as well. So I do think that your test is going to have a ton of value, not only in early identification and isolation of people who test positive, but I think it's going to just give us a more like firm data point as to the R naught of this virus, because we're still kind of guessing like, oh, it could be two, it could be four. And if you crunch the numbers on an R naught of two and an R naught of four, it's the difference of millions of people dying. And because of our lack of testing, we can't really mm -hmm. pin down these models. So I think that um, the the CDC, the WHO, our White House are going to have a much better plan of action strategy, uh, kind of a timeline of returning our country back to some sense of normalcy. The more data points that you guys and your team are able to provide uh, as far as just a generalized like testing of the American populace as to how many people have this thing. Right. And uh, from the understanding to date, there are up to 25% of the people who have it who are asymptomatic. And even as it stands now, a lot of the people who presumably are positive are unable to get tested because of limitations. So that's artificially suppressing the number of known cases. So you're right. You can't understand that rate of transmission to say, hey, this every person statistically will infect two people or they'll infect four people because that's going to exponentially change the route of transmission and the number of people who are going to get the virus. But it is interesting even with 
the influx of new testing that over the course of time, people focus a lot on mortality rates. And it's understood that it's expected to be low because of countries like South Korea, who have extensive testing, who pin this somewhere around one and a half, one percent. But as the U.S. even has done more testing, the mortality rates have started to rise just because you can't keep up with the number of cases. So it kind of artificially appears that this virus is killing more people per capita than it might be. But that's simply because you can only go off of the data that you have. And so, I mean, even on a worldwide level from a week ago to this week, the worldwide mortality rate has gone up from 4.6 to 5.4%, which, I mean, based on the comparison to like a seasonal influenza, that's about 50 times higher. So it will really start, I think, to give people a better understanding of actually how dangerous the virus is and how quickly it spreads when we do have a better implemented, more widespread testing uh, paradigm in place. So this is purely a, like, this is not meant to be a scientific question. This is more of a crystal ball type question. Like, uh, there's really two horses in this race right now with New York and New Jersey. Who do you think has the highest chance to become like the next New York? Like as far as if we look at Chicago, Dallas, Florida, New Orleans, um, what do you think is the diciest situation when you look at it from a gut feeling standpoint? Um, I would guess that it's probably going to be somewhere in Florida simply because they have a giant population and over the course of the past few weeks, I know a lot of people saw that there were uh, college students from all over the country going on spring break, packing beaches. And then they're not only bringing that with them from other places, but then taking it back. But I know that the leadership in that state has been very resistant to put like a shelter in place uh, into effect. And so I think it was only within the last couple of days that their governor finally closed beaches and, and put the, the state on a stay at home for a 30 day period. And I, I think that the, the window in that state has elapsed during which they could have controlled the spread of it. And so based on the fact too, that their population, they have a lot of elderly uh, folks from around the country who moved down there and that's the most susceptible grouping of our population. So I really feel like things in Florida could get out of hand pretty quickly and, uh, I hope that's not the case, but my, my gut tells me that that's probably going to happen. So another question that I have for you is, do you, if we're racing vaccine versus combinations and cocktails of off-the-shelf drugs, whether it's malaria, z zinc, versus coming up with a, a reproducible vaccine, do you think that either of those are going to be realistic? Do you think that the vaccine is going to be a shorter timetable? Do you think that the drug combos are going to be a better timetable? What do you think? Uh, that's just, I mean, all dependent upon time. So a lot of the clinical trials that are ongoing um, with like the HCQ and z and then there's a uh, remdesivir, which is being done uh, in a lot of trials across the country to try to combat uh, the virus itself. Um, but a lot of those haven't shown outstanding efficacy at treatment. Um, and so ultimately, I think what's going to be the best long-term solution is going to be the development of a vaccine. But 
the timetable for something like that is significantly longer. You can't really just put a vaccine out into the population. Um, and I know that there are some studies that have already engaged in Washington. People have already taken vaccines, but uh, it's going to take, I mean, 12 months to get the uh, data to support the efficacy of a vaccine. So it's really just, uh, it's it's a race against time. And, and in the short term, you can try to test more antiretrovirals and more treatments for the, the virus itself. But I think ultimately what's going to be necessary to really mitigate this on a worldwide level is to have a, an, a vaccine that that is going to be widely available and that will hopefully be resistant to any different strains of the virus. Um, I think based on the viral structure and the way that it replicates, um, it should be a, a, a vaccine that can be uh, successful over the course of a number of years. But uh, again, that's just given the data that we have, there could be things that change in the future that, that change that as well. And it's my understanding that if you rush a vaccine and you you misjudge it or you're off by just a little bit, that you can cause a paradoxical hyperimmune response and people have a paradoxical negative reaction to exposure to the virus if you don't judge it correctly. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that is definitely the case. And um that would kind of emulate some of the end stage cases that people are going into hospitals and, and you have uh, an overactive immune response. And so if you don't modulate that vaccine correctly and characterize it so that those things don't happen, then yeah, you're kind of playing with fire and that you're putting people at risk um, just for the sake of trying to get something out there faster, but, but you could, you could make things worse. Yeah, with like the whole cytokine storm, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in general, I'm going to give you like five minutes to just like if you could just make a billboard with a lot of words on it to the American public. And I have a feeling I know your response and it's not going to have a lot of words to it. What would you tell our three whole listeners to this podcast to do in response to this? Uh, my response would probably be four words long and it would just be stay the fuck home. Um, ultimately that is what is going to save the most lives is preventing community spread. Um, I know that people don't want to disrupt their lifestyles and people are going to be put in difficult employment situations. And, uh, I can sympathize with that, but the sooner that people take this seriously and, make the short-term sacrifices that are necessary for everybody, the better the outcome will be. Um, we may have passed the point of no return, but there is still work to be done that can make things uh, a little bit better from a countrywide perspective. And so I just wish that people would listen to experts and to trust in the people who have spent their lives dedicated to epidemiology and public health and not to listen to people on cable entertainment news shows and politicians who are angling for votes. Um, so I, I hope for the best, but I'm preparing for the worst. And I think that everybody needs to do that and to accept the fact that it's very likely that everybody will know somebody who is uh, a victim of this disease and, and to prepare for the 
the aftermath of, of what is to come. Well, I knew that was going to be your answer, but I think that everybody needed to hear it. Um, we, we do need to take this more seriously, and that's why I wanted to get a very credible brain on the podcast and get it out to some of my sports medicine people, some of my PTs, some of my chiros, some of my gym owners, just so that they know from a credible person, not someone like me that just kind of peruses people who are smart, but it's just kind of secondhand knowledge. I mean, you're in the lab, you're, you're on the front lines of this and you're changing the country. So uh, I really do appreciate you taking 25 minutes of your time because I know that you are just taxed to the max. You're probably getting as, as much sleep as Dr. Fauci right now. Uh, so I do really appreciate your time. Uh, and, and thanks for coming on the podcast, man. And if we do need, if things pull a 180, if you can spare 15 minutes, I'd love to have you back on for kind of a round two update if we can circle back. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I hope for those who do listen uh, that, that this makes a difference in your perspective and uh, to share the severity of this with people who might not be taking it seriously. Um, I really do want to emphasize that this is not something to take lightly. It's not a flu. It's not uh, something that's just going to go away. So please uh, protect your health, protect your family, protect your community. Um, and we all need to work together to get through this. So I, I hope that we can do that. All right, Bobby, thanks for your hard work and we will let you go. Sounds good, Nick. Thank you. Thank you.